Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Father God, we thank you so much for uh, your kindness to us, and we thank you that you listen to our prayers and that you're there ready to help us. And uh, we just ask that as we look at your word tonight, that you give us understanding and help us to uh, know your character through uh, what you've told us in your word and that we grow in our trust and love for you. And so we just ask that you glorify yourself through uh, your work in our hearts, through your word tonight. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If anyone needs to go back to their seat, you're welcome to do that. So, this is a class on Ezra and Esther. So, why did you come to a class on Ezra and Esther? I am interested to know that. <laughs> so, you don't have to share, but anyone uh, want to share why they're here? It doesn't have to be anything crazy. Yeah, Linda. I like the title. The good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Excellent. Good. Yeah. Because Ezra 7.10 says, Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Mm-hmm. Good. Any other reasons? Yeah. Because my name is Hadassah. Okay. That's awesome. Good. Any other reasons? Yeah. I was talking to your wife about something I was learning from Scripture, and she's like, that's my husband's whole class is on right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We've been talking about it. That's awesome. Cool. Any other reasons? Yeah. Esther's always been my favorite Bible character. Mm-hmm. Cool. Good. All right. Those those are great reasons. Thanks for sharing those. Uh, these both are books that I have not studied a lot. So, as a child, I learned uh, about Esther, but not really Ezra. And as I've heard about these in the past, it's been without context of where they land in biblical history. And where they're placed in the Bible is not helpful if you're thinking chronologically. So, they're, they're placed pretty far forward in the canon of Scripture. Uh, so, here's a chart. Oh, man. The first click didn't work. This is going to be great. So here's a chart uh, kind of explaining the timeline of history. Okay, So we're actually studying this box right here. That's what Ezra and Esther are about. Uh, so all the way back here is creation. So you have Genesis, um, the, you know, the Pentateuch, and then the other books. And we spend a lot of time in those. We tend to, to know those pretty well. But... Uh, What's happening in our book is the kingdom has already been divided and then the southern kingdom has been taken into captivity by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar specifically. So you think of Daniel, he would have been one that was taken into captivity and Daniel wrote from captivity in Babylon and in his time it transitioned to the Persian kings as well. Uh, when we jump into uh, our books, we find Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther 
uh, are all similar in time. So uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are similar, and they were actually originally written as one book, um, and they've been divided since then, but they all follow the same uh, theme of the history of the rebuilding of uh, Jerusalem. So in our book in Ezra, the first six chapters, actually Ezra's not there yet. He's probably not even alive. Uh, it follows Zerubbabel, who we'll talk about in a little bit, and Jeshua, and they return with a remnant of Israel to begin rebuilding the temple. And then at that time, it kind of pauses and it goes uh, in the chronology of everything. It flashes back to Persia, and that's when Esther happens. Esther happens between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. There's a big gap in time that we don't read about. So then we get back to Ezra 7, and that's when Ezra goes to uh, Jerusalem uh, to continue helping there with another remnant. And Ezra actually ends kind of weirdly. It's kind of a tragedy where the people are returning, and there's like all this excitement to be going back to the promised land, and that's where all that language of, uh, Ezra says it seven or eight times where he's like, the good hand of the Lord is upon us. And they're going and God is going to fulfill their promise, his promise to bring him back. And then a bunch of the, the men in Israel take foreign wives. And there's just like this huge mourning and it's really sad. And Ezra chapter 10 is just a listing of the men who repented of uh, marrying uh, non-Israelite women. So it's just kind of a weird book. But when you realize that it's one book with Nehemiah, Nehemiah picks back up and he comes back and uh, helps in Jerusalem there too. So it's kind of a, a timeline of restoration. And at one point in the rebuilding of the temple, they stall out. They, uh, there's a change in government back in Persia and someone's like, do you actually have permission to be rebuilding the temple? And they stop building it. And that's when uh, Haggai and Zechariah, Zechariah show up, the minor <laughs> prophets, and they prophesy, I think it's in Ezra chapter 4, to that remnant in Israel and say, finish building the temple, is basically what those books say, um, those prophets. So that's kind of the, the zoomed out picture and notice that at the Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, chronologically too. And then there's 400 years of silence. That's exciting. <laughs> Somebody's drilling holes in the wall. Um, so something, something really interesting about this group that is going back to Jerusalem is they're the same Jewish people to whom Christ is born to. So uh, for that uh, heritage of Christ to happen, that genealogy, uh, these books are necessary. It is God's good hand upon these people to provide uh, people to birth the Messiah. Um, but yeah, there's 400 years of silence until the New Testament begins. So this is kind of a zoomed out version of where we're at. We're right at the end of the Old Testament history. That's where we're studying in, in Ezra and uh, Nehemiah and Esther. We won't be studying Nehemiah together. But what would these people have felt like? Okay, so this is a people who they had glorious years with King David, King Solomon, and then the kingdom was divided, 
and then they were in captivity for 70 years, and now these people are uh, remembering God's promise to bring them out of captivity, and they're mustering up the courage to go back to the rubble of Jerusalem. What do you, where do you think they would have been at um, as, as a people or as individuals? What do you guys think? Yes. I mean, they have their books and they have the testimony, but they wouldn't have their personal recollection. Right. Yeah, so it's like a completely different generation that's going back. And we'll see that there's some that were there at the beginning or, at, you know, before they were taken into captivity that go back with them. And those people especially are very emotional. They, they weep when the foundation of the temple is poor or is finished. They're just like... But they would have had like children. Right. Right. But it's just a weird... Like, we don't uh, experience anything quite like that in our normal lives. You know, we... I don't know if you've ever been on vacation and it's like, oh, I'm finally home! And it's like... I don't know. It's fun to, to travel and stuff, but it's nice to be home, too. But to think about being gone for... 70 years to be uh, you know, captive to foreign governments and everything. It's, it's a weird thing that they've just been through. And it's not, you know, they're not, uh, within their history, you know, they were in Egypt in bondage and thing, things like that. But this is a people that has kind of lost their identity as individuals, as uh, a Jewish people. Uh, well, that's part of the problem is some of the uh, influence that they've received in Babylon and in Persia as they go back. Yeah, Dale? I was just thinking, put in current context, how many people do you know who actually fought in World War II sure. 70 years mm -hmm. ago? Mm -hmm. That's really good. Yeah, and I'm not that old. <laughs> and so it's weird to think about like 70 years of my life has been spent in captivity. Uh, that's a wild thing. So. All right, this is the, the zoomed out view. We're going to zoom in a little bit here. If I can get this to, I don't know if I'm hiding it from myself. I am. So I think if I move this out here, we'll be golden. Um, so this is another, another picture of the books. Uh, it helps put the books of the Bible more in chronological order. So our, our books will be... Uh, down there at the bottom. So as you look down through here, uh, we're following the Judah that was taken into captivity in 586. Um, and now they're, they're coming through that. And so Ezekiel and Daniel both wrote from captivity. And uh, Jeremiah did some too. And they have interesting perspectives because a lot of their things are visions where they're like brought, especially Ezekiel, he's brought back to Jerusalem and he kind of sees what's going on from captivity. God brings him back and lets him see uh, what's going on and then he prophesies against them and things like that. But as you can see, Ezra, um, Esther occurs in the middle of Ezra chronologically. They're in two very different places geographically, but it's a similar chart as the last one. 
This one is very zoomed in on the timeline that we'll be studying. Um, so, sorry, I'm trying to run two things at once. There we go. Um, so as you look at here, so here's the timeline for the 70 year captivity. Um, so they were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And then you can see the prophets that wrote kind of during the captivity. And then we're going to pick up right here at 538 BC. And as we'll read in chapter one, the leader of that time is Zerubbabel, is his Jewish name, and Sheshbazar is his Persian name or foreign name. And he's called uh, the Prince of Judah. Does anyone know why he would be called the Prince of Judah? So if we, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 1. This is the Davidic genealogy of Christ. And if you look in verses 12 and 13, who do you see there? Yeah, he is, he is one of the ancestors of Christ. And so what we're tracking through here is the genealogy of our Savior. And that this is, uh, and you can imagine these people, okay? They're going back to Jerusalem. They're trying to rebuild their nation, and they have a Davidic king leading them. <laughs> this would be like, like this, this could be the Messiah in their mind. The prophesied one, he's leading us back to the land. Uh, I think the Israelites would be kind of like, what is happening? So let's work through our notes a little bit. Um, there's another chart here, but we'll get to that later. Um, so the first one is that they were prophesied to go into 70 years of captivity. So that's kind of a, yeah, we get it. But if we go back to Jeremiah 25 which you actually have to turn forward to get to, even though it was written uh, before. Yeah, before. My brain's going to get all mixed up. I've been so confused, like flipping back and forth and trying to keep the dates straight. It'll be great. So Jeremiah 25. <clears throat> and we won't read all of these. So let's go down to verse uh, 4 of Jeremiah 25. He says, And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. So Jeremiah is writing to the Israelites way before this, before the 70-year captivity, and is saying, You have not listened to God, and uh, that's not good. So in verse 5, they said, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods and serve them and worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. And I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. And then as we go down, 
Um, look at verse 9. It says, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual desolation. And so there he prophesies that he's sending Nebuchadnezzar to punish them. And then in verse 10, Moreover, I will take from them the voice of myrrh and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So it was very clear to the people. They had Jeremiah tell them directly, if you don't repent, you will go into a 70-year captivity beginning with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. But then as we read on, there's the promise um, that, that uh, God will punish Babylon. So in verse 12 he says, Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And so we know that's true that Persia came and uh, took out Babylon. And so then the Israelites moved from uh, being under Babylon's rule to being under Cyrus's rule with the Persians. So they knew. They knew that they were facing 70 years of captivity if they didn't repent. And they didn't repent. So let's go to Jeremiah 29. And some of you might be familiar with verse 11. You might be able to quote Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, not to harm you, but to give you hope in the future. So this is actually fulfilled in Ezra chapter 1. Jeremiah 29.11 is uh, fulfilled in our text that we'll study in a few minutes. Uh, so looking at, starting in verse 10, it says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place which I cause you to be carried away captive." And so we have both God's promise that he will send them into captivity if they do not repent, but also his promise uh, to bring them out of captivity uh, after 70 years. So it's not based upon their repentance. Um, it's just God's promise to do that. And so now when we come to Ezra chapter 1, what do we read? It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And so, here we are. Ezra chapter 1, God is saying, the 70 years are up, I promise to bring you out and bring you back to Israel. I will keep my promise. I will bring you out. And so that's the book of Ezra. And we'll get into it more in a little bit. Um, but I just want to outline the book overall for you real quick. So a little bit of the background, we talked some about this. Uh, this is your blank. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written as one book, and then Nehemiah is the sequel to Chronicles. 
So the last verse of 2 Chronicles is the first verse of Ezra. It just repeats, which is kind of fun. <laughs> and so they very clearly picked up the story in the same place. Um, but the, the, prophet, or the statement by Cyrus is not there. Um, real quick, uh, I passed over the class outline. So I mentioned that Esther appears in between Ezra 6 and 7. So all that happens in 1 through 6 is the first expedition goes uh, back to Jerusalem. And they start rebuilding the temple. And then they kind of pause and then start back up. And then it flashes back to Persia in our timeline. And everyone almost dies, which is significant. So you think about the story of Esther. She, uh, Haman was trying to kill every Jew in the Persian Empire. Mm -hmm. And that would have been all of the Jews in Jerusalem. It would have been, the command was to kill any Jewish person and plunder their stuff. That was the new law. And so that's what Esther, uh, God used Esther to save uh, them from that. So if you think about the timeline, it's like, oh guys, we're finally back. And then like, they almost get wiped out. It's almost a genocide of them right on the brink of uh, what they hope to be is the rebuilding. And then the last four chapters of Ezra is Ezra leading another group back, a second group from exile back to uh, Jerusalem. So I underline the first one because that's where we're at in our timeline right now. Okay, jumping back down. Sorry about that. The third bullet point the Israelites desired a restoration of the theocratic kingdom. So, thinking through the timeline of history, we see God make a perfect world, a perfect kingdom with Adam and Eve, and then it falls. And then uh, they move forward, and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, and God wipes everyone out but Noah's family. And then Noah's back, and then it progresses, and then we get to Abraham, and God chooses Abraham to be the father of his chosen nation, of his chosen kingdom people to show what he's like to the world. And so as we move through that, we, it's very obvious to us that Abraham's not perfect, uh, Isaac's not perfect, you know, none, none of these patriarchs of Israel are perfect. And... Uh, you know, even we get to David, and it's obvious that he's not perfect, right? And so, throughout all the Old Testament, there's this, we should have this sense of like, where's the one who's going to crush the serpent's head? Where's the Messiah? And I think the people are always looking for that person, and they never find him, because he doesn't come until Christ is born. Um, and so, as we look through the Old Testament, we see the people... Uh, you know, they want David to be the Messiah, to be the perfect king, but he's not. And then we find out that it will be one of David's descendants, and it just kind of builds and builds uh, throughout all that time. But at, uh, we know at Mount Sinai that God wants Israel to be his chosen people and to keep his law that he gives them. And so that's kind of when they become a, more of a kingdom nation, is when that happens because God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And there's that covenant uh, relationship made there between God and the people of Israel. 
And then what happens is, I think the plan was that God would just be their king and they would follow him. But they didn't, the people didn't want that. They rebelled against God's leadership of them and requested a king eventually, and so God gave it to them. And then eventually we know that Christ would come from that. But I think God's plan all along has been to uh, reestablish uh, the kingdom of God on earth. Um, and that will someday happen with Christ in the kingdom. And we will see in Ezra that it doesn't happen. That Zerubbabel is not the Messiah. He's just an ancestor of the Messiah. So, thinking about that context of the Israelites desiring to be Israel again, to be the nation of Israel, to have a Davidic king, uh, to be the nation that God blesses and that just defeats their enemies, uh, whoever it might be. What are some things that they're looking for as they are heading back to restore the kingdom in Israel, this remnant that's going back? What are, what are some things that are required for them to be the theocratic kingdom again? The temple, exactly. So that's, that's the big thing uh, that Ezra you know, hits hard on is like that the temple is where God dwells amongst the people of Israel. And if we don't have that, then we don't have Israel as a kingdom. So I know in our New Testament uh, dispensation, uh, we discredit the temple and the temple sacrifices. But if you read... Uh, Leviticus, it says they, they kill the animal and their sins are forgiven. So I don't think God's lying about that. There's some uh, covering of their sin that's happening in those sacrifices. And so, uh, you know, God doesn't dwell in temples uh, made by hands. We know these things. But for the people of Israel, they, this is where God dwelled and this is where they came and confessed their sin. So it's a big deal to them as a nation. And if you think about them as relating to God as the theocrat, as their leader, as the king, you know, where do we have to go when we speed? Court. We have to go to court, right? We have to go appear before the government. So in Israel, God is the government. And so I think that's part of what's happening when they make sacrifices is they're uh, paying their fine, so to speak. And I think there was always an element just like Abraham, where they had to believe God and have that accounted to them as righteousness. And so I don't think the temple sacrifices, I think they were actually meant to show them, like, I keep killing these animals and I'm still guilty. <laughs> like, it's, it's meant to, to bring them to their knees and say, God, I, this isn't working. Like, I keep sinning. I need you to save me and to look to God in faith. So I think that's partially what's happening and that's not fully what we'll get into in this class. But what are some other things that they would need as they head back to Jerusalem? Homes. Homes, yeah, exactly. And that's actually what uh, Haggai's about, is he, he kind of comes up to him and he's like, guys, you built your houses, but the temple's not done. <laughs> <laughs> you got some nice houses, but God's house is, uh, is not done. So, yep, but you're exactly right, Dan. Good. Walls to protect themselves. Walls to protect themselves. Good from enemies. Yep. What else? 
kind of touched on this, but maybe to narrow the scope a little bit, like a law or a system of living. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so they would have been using the Mosaic Covenant, which is why Ezra, uh, like Donna said, is so important, is he, he's an expert in the law. And so he's kind of coming back to instruct them and help them in that manner. Good. There's one more thing I'm fishing for. Well, kind of two. <laughs> exactly, a Davidic king. And so knowing that the Davidic king is the rightful heir under God's promise to David that his son you know, will always reign on the throne, uh, they would have wanted a Davidic king. Exactly. And then I'm looking for... Priests, yep, that's what I was fishing for. There's other things too. But for a temple, you need priests in the temple, and so they would have needed, needed uh, descendants of Aaron to be correct priests. So as we look through chapter 1, we'll see all of these things present. Uh, they have all of that stuff with them. So there's the blanks. So they need a Davidic king, they need a priesthood, and, and the temple along with that. And then they need uh, to keep the Mosaic Covenant. And so that's partially what goes so wrong in the second part of Ezra, is they don't. They don't keep the covenant. And Ezra actually panics. It's very interesting. He, he find, someone comes and tells him, like, people have been marrying foreign wives. And he's just like, it's over. Like, the nation's done. He gives up. Someone from the crowd actually yells out a plan because he's so like, we're, God's going to wipe us out. This was our last shot. <laughs> Ezra, it's really interesting. He just like clams up and doesn't do anything. And, and some, it says some guy in the crowd is like, make him repent or I don't know. It's like something like that. It's really funny. But yes, good. And then our theme for the class is the good hand of our God is upon us. And so I listed the scripture references where Ezra says those things. And I think each one of those is significant. And he says it repeatedly. And it shows his faith um, in God to carry them through this process of returning to uh, Jerusalem. And he knows it's God's plan for them. He knows this is what God wants them to do. What God's promise was through Jeremiah. And so he trusts God to fulfill that plan and to carry it through. And he says it in a really interesting way later on in the book. Um, he, he's afraid. They stop at a spot by a river for like three days. And they're hanging out there. And he knows they're about to go through some enemy territory before they get back to Jerusalem. And he's afraid to go on because he's afraid they'll get, all get killed by these enemies. Because they're not warriors. You know, they've been in captivity. They're just trying to get home. And he says, I didn't ask Cyrus for help because I didn't want to like shame God's name. Like I didn't want, want it to seem like we needed Persia's help to have God fulfill his promise to us. And so he, he kind of walks through all that. He says, uh, I didn't want to ask the king for help and I'm kind of scared. And then he goes, the good hand of the Lord is upon us. And he assures himself and the people that this is what God wants for us. And so even though it looks really bad, <laughs> we're going to go forward and we're going to get back to uh, Jerusalem. All right. So that's kind of like the, the bird's eye view and then zoomed in on the book a little bit. Um, does anyone have any questions 
on any of that? Or any thoughts or additions or any connections you see? This is something new that I've been studying, and so I'm sure there's plenty of, you know, you maybe have read Ezekiel recently and something pops into mind that relates to this. I don't know. But if you ever think of anything, please raise your hand and ask, and I would love to, to know about it. Okay. So we'll go ahead and jump into chapter one. Uh, and we're going to go through chapter two, verse 67. So most of chapter two is just a listing of the people that are returning back. Uh, and so it's not that exciting, but it'll be a little helpful to us as we think through some of those questions that we've already been asking. <clears throat> so all of chapter one is kind of this picture of God moving to send a remnant back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so it's not just that they, we, we kind of get the, the perspective that God has. The author gives us insight that God is orchestrating this. And so several times he talks about how God moves the spirit of the king, he stirred the spirit of the king, and God moves uh, some of the leaders of the households. So, Ezra chapter 1, we start reading, and it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying... So we'll get to that in a second. But it's kind of interesting to note that uh, God is doing this to keep his word. Okay, it's, it's to fulfill what he promised. So his, his, his carrying through of this is based in his own character, his own promises that he's made, not on the deservingness of the people. So it's not, and the people of Israel finally repented. So God brought them out of captivity. This is one of those where he promised to do it, and so he does it even if they might have been repentant. It doesn't say. Uh, so looking at Cyrus, the king of Persia, um, they, the Persians were interesting. So they obviously don't believe in Jehovah God as the only God. They were kind of monotheistic in that they had like a God above all gods called Ahura Mazda. So if you've ever heard of Mazda vehicles, it comes from that name. And so Ahura means Lord, and Mazda means wisdom. It's Persia for, Persian for wisdom. So it's Lord Wisdom was the, the god over all the gods in Persia. And the Persians, uh, they conquered a huge scope of the ancient world, and they didn't want to govern it all directly, and so they let the peoples within their territory uh, keep their own customs, keep their own worship and gods and religion, and they kind of said, like, yeah, your God's real. Go for it. Just listen to us still when we tell you what to do. Does that kind of make sense? So it's going to sound like Cyrus has been convinced that Jehovah is the God. But I don't think he really does. Because we know that he did this with lots of nations. And that's how he governed uh, his territory, was he allowed uh, different peoples to continue living their own customs under his rule. So he says in verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given to me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. 
May his God be with you, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with gold, or sorry, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So that sounds great. Like he's, he's praising God. He calls him, uh, you know, he says he is God. Um, lots, of, lots of great things. But I do think he's, he's just saying that politically. He's not saying it religiously. So this is a political statement, uh, kind of a piece like, sure, go back, rebuild, and answer back to me. And we see that later on in the book, that they, they appeal back to, it's not Cyrus at that time, but the current leader, it's Xerxes, um, when someone questions them, they say, who gave you the right to rebuild here? And they send a letter back to Xerxes, who is the current Persian king at that time, and he says, yeah, go for it, because they find this law written in their records. So it's kind of fun. But. And one thing to note in verse 2, he calls uh, God the Lord God of heaven. And so you can kind of think about this as like his, God's international name or political name in the Persian people's eyes. So maybe they called him like the God of heaven. Um, but it, it kind of runs throughout the book as well that they, they keep that. So there's a little fun thing. So God moves in the heart of the king to send them back. And he even says that, that God told him to send them back to build the temple. And so I say that other thing pretty strongly, but maybe God told him to do that. And he said, okay. <laughs> but I still don't think he, he ended up being monotheistic and believing in Jehovah God um, as the only God. So do you have something, Dale? Yeah, well, in verse 3, he mentioned that he's the God who is in Jerusalem. It's kind of like, okay, in Jerusalem, you can worship Right, this right, God, he's the and God. And over there, yeah. you can worship his other God. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, Good. Kind of like what the Hindus do. Yeah, yeah. You can have yours there and mine over there. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting how, how he acts here. Like, it's not how you think a king would act. Um, you know, how many kings who have captives are like, yeah, you guys should go back. Like, you know, thanks for being my slaves. <laughs> but he, he does. And, and then something else happens kind of bizarre in, in verse 7. We'll get there in a minute. But he's like, and here's all your gold back. <laughs> That's pretty much what happens. So uh, let's keep reading in verse 5. He says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites with all those, oh, sorry, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. And so we see uh, really obviously here that God is orchestrating this. First, he moves the heart of this Persian king to send him back. Uh, to keep his promise, and then he also begins to move in the hearts of the fathers of the houses of Israel. And so we see God's sovereignty really strongly right at the opening of the book here, that this is God doing this. God is the one bringing them back. God is the one restoring them, and uh, they should go. 
And then we get to verse 7, and it's just, it seems so bizarre to me. Like, I don't know. He gives back what he's kind of rightfully stolen from Babylon that they stole from the Israelites. Look at it with me. It says, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord. So the, the items that they would have needed to continue on in their temple worship. Uh, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithradath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is just a comical scene in my mind because this mighty Persian king who has rightful control of all of these captives is like physically handing over the things that Israel needs to be a nation again, the articles of the temple, to the Davidic king. It's just like this really interesting picture that as uh, the Jewish people, as they read this, it would, it would be like, this is wild. Like the prince of Judah, the Davidic king, is receiving the stuff back for the temple and God's promise is coming true. Can you kind of be in their shoes and, and feel the the bizarreness of like being in captivity for 70 years and then it's finally happening. Um, in verse 9, this is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. On these... Sheshbazar took with the cap. Oh, sorry. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so, yeah, it's this fortune that he's just giving back to them to go back and uh, have their nation again. And so, again, I think it's a political move by uh, Cyrus. I think he wants them to go back and kind of rule that territory under him. But you can obviously see God orchestrating this. Uh, through him to make all this happen uh, for the Israelites. So the, the blank for that is God moved the heart of the Persian king to give temple articles back. <clears throat> and thinking about the, the people who are coming out of captivity, um, you know, it notes there that these things were put in, the, in Babylon's temples. These have been in pagan gods, false god temples, for 70 years, and now they have them back in their hands, and they have a leader, and it's like, whoa, here we go. <laughs> What's happening? And I think they would have been, you know, you think about like the Egyptians uh, having the Israelites captive, and the Israelites leave Egypt, and they're like, we had it way better in Egypt. Like, it, it's actually kind of hard for them probably to leave captivity, to go back to something that some of them barely remember and most of them have never experienced. And to go back to that would be uh, fearful and it had to be just a weird time for them to like, is this really happening? Are we really doing this? Um, so yeah, it's cool to see God's hand uh, work through all this. Does anybody have any questions or thoughts to add for chapter one? Dale, sorry. Linda, <laughs> I'll let you two figure it out. You're great. Um, I'm curious where Daniel is in this situation. Yeah. Is he gone by now, I think, huh? 
<clears throat> or I'm, I'm wondering if he influenced Cyrus. Sure. Mm -hmm. No, I think he's still there. We can look at our timeline here because my brain is tiny. Um, so let's see. I think he is gone. Oh, hold on. This is the right one. So here's Daniel. Yeah, so he would have been there um, when all this was happening. So we're at 538 here, and then the next, like, it names all the people, but then the next chap, like, half chapter is when they actually get there. We don't have a lot of stuff recorded on that. So yeah, Daniel would have been there, and uh, as a political leader would have been influential. Yeah, he would have been super old. Right. And I just can't help but wonder, because he was so successful with three kings, if he didn't influence Cyrus, you know, like, you know, that gold, that's ours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you should send that along. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, don't forget that. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, it's cool to see how they all line up, that, that Daniel would have been, he but probably was a part of that. that number 530, Darius, Daniel <clears throat> was serving Darius. Right. Yeah, and at least in Daniel's prophecy that mentions, you know, the Persians and all that. So, Good. Yeah, do you have something, Dale? The other thing I was thinking about is you're talking about kings and human people. And how long do we stay fascinated with something hmm. regardless of how valuable it is? Right. It becomes old stuff. He's a king who's constantly getting stuff and you probably need to make room sure for the new stuff right and that sounds terrible no no you realize what he's dealing with but it's very human right yeah i have a map of his empire and it's like the biggest and is it grew, empire of that time more stuff yeah he's going to send it out and tax them get it back anyway right yeah <laughs> in his mind mm-hmm good Sheila, did you have something? I was just going to ask it. I was just wondering what the difference in a theocratic king and a Davidic king is. Yeah. So the idea of a, a theocracy is that the God is the king. So it's ruled by God. Um, so Israel at Mount Sinai, God is the theocrat. He's saying, I'll be your king, I'll be your God, and you will be my people. And that works for a time until they grow discontent and they want to be like other nations and they say, I want a king. Um, but that was still the king's job. Like David was responsible to write the law. Um, and so the, the Israelite, the Davidic king, was responsible to know the will of God and to do it. And so they were to be uh, God's representative to the people that was their job. That's what they did. And that's why Saul got in so much trouble is because he stopped doing that. He started doing his own thing instead of God's will. David is Davidic. Yep. Yep. Yep, exactly. He's the king after God's own heart and the one that God wanted the Messiah to come through. And so he chose David and promised that the Messiah would come from David's line. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Any other thoughts on chapter one? <laughs>
It's just 67 verses in the next point, so it'll be great. <clears throat> okay, so chapter 2 is a big list. So God gives a list and numbering of the returning remnant. So what we find here is that God has preserved lots of Jews. A lot of them are, are alive and well and are ready to go back. Yes, this is point number one. There it is. Oh, I don't have the underlines. I think it's list and returning are the blanks. Uh, so we'll read, we won't read all of these for sake of time, but we'll read one, the beginning of two, and then we'll jump around a little bit. So Ezra chapter two, it says, Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity. So it's introducing what's about to happen. This is all the, the households that go back from captivity to Jerusalem in the first return. Of those who've been carried away from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. <clears throat> and so it says those who came with Zerubbabel, so now it's switched from his Persian name to his Jewish name, so it's, this is the same guy as Sheshbazar above, the prince of Judah. And note how it's saying that there, people are returning with him. So it's not, he's not like in the list, he's leading the list. He's the, people, he's the leader of the list going back because he's the king. Um, and then it lists a bunch of people. So we'll just look at the first two, Jeshua. So he is the high priest. He's a descendant of... Um, Aaron, I believe, I'm saying that correctly. He ends up being the high priest. And uh, there's a lot about him throughout this. Uh, Zechariah 4 is a fun chapter to read about Jeshua. Uh, he has a vision of before the angel of the Lord, before what we think is Jesus Christ. And that's where he appears before him and he has filthy robes on. And the angel of the Lord puts beautiful, clean robes on him. And it's just this really interesting vision that happens in uh, the timeline of this book, obviously, because Jeshua is there. And then Nehemiah. So this is a different Nehemiah than Nehemiah in Nehemiah. Yes, lots of Nehemiahs. Uh, and so you can see in 2A there on your outline, so some people are returning, it just lists a bunch of leaders. And then it lists the priests. So remember uh, that that's important to get temple things kicked off, worship things kicked off. These are the, the worship leaders of Israel. And then the Levites as well. And their singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim. I didn't have time to look into what the Nethanim are, but that would be uh, an interesting thing for someone to look into what that is, but if you do, you get bonus points next week. Um, and then the sons of Solomon's servants and the unregistered. So I believe those are the people who, they couldn't prove that they were directly Jewish, and so they, they came along anyways, but they were unregistered. And then the last uh, couple verses there give the numbering of the whole group so in verse 64, the whole assembly together, 
was 42,360, not including the, their servants, which numbered 7,337. And they had 200 men and women singers. You guys ever travel and take singers with you? I, I, don't, I don't understand that. It's great. Um, and then it names their horses, their mules, their camels, their donkeys. And then, in, and then we'll pick up next week in 68. But this is just, uh, you know, again, imagine you're finally going back to the promised land. And these are the people that are going. That's why this is so significant. That's why they take the time to write it down is because these are the chosen ones, the, the lucky ones, so to speak, that get to go back. They get to go back and see the temple rebuilt and be back in Jerusalem and hopefully kick off the kingdom again. And we know that doesn't happen for another 500 years, but uh, when Christ comes and then now we're still waiting. But it's great. Anybody have any questions about chapter 2, what we covered there? That was pretty fast. Yeah? Not a question, but I looked up the Nephilim. Yes. What is the it? Temple Assistance in ancient uh -huh. Jerusalem. The term was applied originally in the book of Joshua, the Gideonites. Okay. So, assistance in the temple. Nice. I need to look at it, but there's a group that that happened with. I can't remember if it was in Joshua where, is that the one where they trick? That's the Gibeonites. Is it Gibeonites? Is that what you said? The Gibeonites? Yeah, so that's the people that tricked the Israelites into not destroying them, and then they were dedicated to temple service instead of dedicated to destruction. That's a fun story, too. But. Okay, thank you. That is really helpful. I'll write that in. Uh, so what? What does that help us with? Um, we'll just look at that real br briefly here. Hopefully you're picking up on the themes as we went through it. But we can trust the promises of God no matter how bad it gets. So these people, they went through 70 years of being kidnapped. Okay, imagine being kidnapped with your family and then going home. Like how awesome that would be. And they, they trusted the promise of the Lord and they're headed back. Um, and then even as we walk through the book, things get bad, things don't go well, and they still continue uh, to trust God uh, that he's doing this. Okay? Uh, the next one, we need not fear world leaders. So we saw Cyrus. His heart is putty in the hand of the Lord. And, you know, God's like, send him back. He's like, go back. <laughs> Give him the temple things. Here's the temple things. You know, it's like he's on repeat. Uh, God is more powerful and in control of all world leaders. And we can trust him even when things don't go well, right? So God used Nebuchadnezzar to take them captive. And then we read in Jeremiah... God promised to destroy Babylon because of that. He used them both to punish his people, and then he punished them for doing that. And so God's sovereignty is, is big, and he uses uh, world leaders at his will. And that's super helpful for us today because there's a lot of ways that we can fear things going on, people in power, and God's got it all under control. He's got a handle on it, and we can trust him even when things look bad. Uh, and then lastly, we can trust the good hand of God to guide us through his word and to provide for us according to his plan. So we saw both the promise being fulfilled from Jeremiah, that this is happening because God promised to do this, and he's faithful to his word and his character. 
And then we can also trust him to provide for his plan. So the plan was for them to go back and he's sending them with everything they need to, to do it, to rebuild the temple and get the kingdom started again. And so we can trust him as well. As we read his word, we can believe what he says about himself and about us and how we can walk with him in life and walk by faith in him. And then whatever he has for us, we're equipped for it. He gives us what we need. We have the spirit within us. We have the word. We have the body of Christ. And we can step forward in anything he wants us to do uh, with confidence because we're trusting him uh, to provide what we need and to do the work. All right? So I provided for you some of those charts in your notes. Um, and so that would be something helpful to keep with you for the class um, as we go on. I won't print those every week, uh, the charts. And so that's just a helpful resource to be like, where are we at again? Where does this book belong? And, and work through some of those things. All right. We're a little over, so I'll close our time in prayer. And uh, if you have any questions or anything, please feel free to ask. Father God, we thank you so much for the promises of your word, and we thank you for your work in the people of Israel, um, in Ezra, and in Esther, and in Nehemiah, and that you were faithful to bring the Messiah through these unfaithful people. And we are thankful that you were faithful to save us as unfaithful people, and that Christ um, was obedient even to the death on the cross for our sins. And so we ask you to help us to trust you um, through whatever life brings, and that uh, you would just continue to provide and help us to follow your will and to do what's right. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.